This is Guns and Butter. Very precisely, this machine, which uses a vector feed from a computer, it, it just cut out the beautiful letters that spell truth in this piece of sheet steel. And then uh, at another company, the whole thing was welded together. In 2007, uh, I had a whole thing with the truth burn. I called it the truth burn to set up a demonstration project on how uh, thermite could be used to cut through steel. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, John Perulis. Today's show, The Truth Burn, 9-11 Science at Burning Man. John Perulis is an artist, activist, and filmmaker. He has a varied career as a filmmaker, live video streamer, artist, and licensed contractor. He served on Greenpeace ships and land actions as a cameraman from 1983 to 1986. His film work has appeared in numerous environmental documentaries and news stories, including 60 Minutes. He has climbed and summited some of the world's tallest mountains, including Alaska's Denali and Argentina's Aconcagua, where he worked as a guide for an outdoor adventure company. His video work encompasses everything from news and education to sports. He has also been an activist within the 9-11 Truth community since 2006. He has supplied video work and scientific materials for professional publications on the topic of the epic building collapses on September 11, 2001. John Perulis, welcome again. Hi, Bonnie. John, I understand that you were something of a pioneer in the webcam and video streaming independent media movement. I remember being in Seattle for the anti-world trade organization protests in 1999, and Indie Media was there covering it. Did you work with Indie Media in the early days of the alternative news world? Uh, yes, I did, but I wasn't able to make it up to Seattle for the WTO protests. Uh, I think I had work commitments uh, at the time that just I just couldn't get released from. But I was following it avidly, and my understanding is that the indie media movement pretty much got started in 1999 with the WTO protests, and. I became interested with it and uh, did, in fact, uh, join it as a contributor uh, because I was, uh, at that time, I was also getting into uh, live webcam streaming and video streaming when that technology was in its infancy. You became a committed 9-11 truth activist. When and how did you first become aware that the events of September 11th, 2001 were maybe not as the government had portrayed them? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. In our previous interview you did with me, I mentioned my time at Greenpeace, and of course all of that was uh, at sea, on the water. And uh, odd as it may seem, that's how my uh, interest or involvement in 9-11 uh, Truth started. I, I was uh, in my kayak and uh, somewhere around 2005, and uh, I had just gotten out of the Tamales Bay and was 
tying up my kayak to the roof of my truck. And this guy next to me came up to me and he said he was having trouble tying his kayak down and asked me if I had a knife that I, that he could borrow. And I said, well, sure. So I went into my truck. I couldn't find a knife, but I had a box cutter, you know, the standard little box cutter with the retractable blade that slides in and out. And I handed it to him. And as I handed it to him, I said, well, here you go. Here's the weapon that brought down the Twin Towers. And he looked at me and just had this peering gaze into my eyes. And he said, um, I think you ought to look into that a little deeper. And that's all he said. And I kind of stood back and I said, hmm. And it wasn't uh, long after that that I had um, started looking at new shows. Of course, I had been uh, involved as an independent broadcaster uh, video uh, streamer with KPFA since the late 90s. And so I was tapped in to alternative news services and online uh, news services. And I forget what site I was looking at, but it was on the early YouTube before they were bought by Google. And I saw something that just floored me. It stopped me in my tracks. It was in 2005, and I was watching another tower come down on 9-11 that I hadn't seen before. I hadn't seen it on the news, and uh, I saw it on the computers, and it was Building 7. And the way it came down just caused me to play the video over and over and over again. I think I watched it continuously loop for seven or eight times. And I sat back in my chair and I said, oh my God, this was a controlled demolition. The way Building 7 collapsed was no different than all the videos many of us have seen on television of uh, demolition companies using cutter charges and controlled demolition techniques to bring down high-rise buildings, water towers, bridges. Uh, Building 7 came down in the exact same way. And I, I connected the dots together on this, and I said, oh my God, this was a deliberate controlled demolition. I had no doubts about that. And then I just uh, extrapolated from that thinking and thought, well, if this is a, a controlled demolition, then it, it undermines the entire narrative, the, the entire government narrative of what happened on 9-11. And, and that's the, the, I don't know the exact date of that, but it was the year was 2005. And I just became engrossed in anything about how these uh, buildings came down. And then when did you begin working with architect Richard Gage and his architects and engineers for 9-11 Truth? How did you come across Richard? I believe it might have been through your show sometime around uh, 2000 and early 2007 or maybe late 2006. And... Uh, I, I don't know if you interviewed Richard Gage, but I heard some kind of broadcast of his, and uh, I became fascinated. And uh, it was actually in April of 2007 that I heard he was going to be giving um, a, uh, a lecture at Sonoma State University, which is uh, in Ronert Park. It's not too far from where I live. And I thought, oh my God, I've got to 
get there and live stream this. And at that time, uh, the state of the technology had improved a lot more. And uh, I believe I was one of the first people to uh, live stream and post uh, the video of Richard's uh, talk at Sonoma State in April of 2007. And I believe that was the first lecture that he ever gave on 9-11, and I wasn't even aware of it at the time. I only heard about it later. Yeah, um, he tells the story about how he was driving to a job in San Francisco, and he was listening to your show, uh, Guns and Butter, and you had David Ray Griffin on the show talking about all the incongruities and the, the uh, intensely interesting information that was not being reported by the mainstream news on the collapses of uh, the towers in uh, the World Trade Center. And it floored Richard. He says that he had to pull his car over uh, to the side of the road and continue listening to the show. And his life changed forever on that day. And uh, I met Richard, uh, you know, and was able to talk to him at, at that time uh, at Sonoma State. And I was just impressed with the man's integrity, his honesty, maybe even a, a little bit of uh, naivete. Uh, you know, he's a very uh, trusting, uh, outgoing individual, and uh, he's maintained that ingenuous uh, integrity, honesty, all throughout his life. And he's still going strong. I mean, he, he's right up on the charts of 9-11 uh, truth activists and always producing great work. Yeah, he's still at it. Quite amazing. Very, very committing. The show that you're referring to that Richard Gage heard, the interview with David Ray Griffin, it was actually... Uh, produced uh, in response to a lawsuit that was brought by the New York Times against, I believe, the New York City Fire Department, who had interviewed uh, on-the-spot eyewitnesses to the events of September 11th, including firemen and other uh, first responders. And it was because of that lawsuit that their eyewitness testimony was made public, and of course, they were attesting to having seen and heard the the demolition bangs. rings. You know, yeah, the, they heard bangs of uh, multiple explosions, uh, even coming from the basement of uh, one of the World Trade Towers. And anybody that's heard an explosion knows what it sounds like, and, and it, it's a very sharp, loud report. And uh, it, it's an unusual sound. It's not like the sound of a firework that, that kind of poofs and echoes through the upper atmosphere. It has a very different, distinct uh, sound to it. And these guys, I've seen the videos uh, of them uh, that you refer to uh, talking about this. Yes, yes. And also visually, they, they could see the demolition rings, the explosions going around the buildings. Yeah, uh, th there was a person in a high-rise uh, near the Twin Towers, and he saw flashes going around in a symmetrical way, uh, you know, around upper portions of one of the towers. I forget if it was the North or the South Tower, but, you know, there was a lot of eyewitness testimony uh, like that, and uh, 
the mainstream news did everything they could to suppress uh, that. That's they they probably inadvertently gave a lot of uh, space for alternative news to spring up in, in the vacuum created by their lack of good journalism. You volunteered, you proceeded to volunteer with architects and engineers for 9-11 Truth. What kind of work did you do on their behalf? Well, after I met Richard Gage, I uh, took a look uh, at his website that he had made himself. Uh, these were in the just the beginning stages of architects and engineers for 9-11 Truth. And with another volunteer, um, you know, we approached uh, Richard and uh, offered our webmaster services. I have a degree in uh, web development, and um, I was uh, working for clients already uh, doing web uh, design services back then. And we thought we could design a better website for him, and he let let us go at it. And we put up the first really decent-looking AE 9/11 Truth website. And uh, being that I was also a video professional, uh, was posting uh, on it uh, videos that I had shot and, of course, other videos, the news services and people who were filming uh, the way the towers collapsed and Building 7, uh, you know, it, it was all going on there. And of course, Richard uh, was creating a firestorm of controversy because he was a uh, uh, you know, a licensed uh, degreed architect. And at the time, I think he got something like 600 other licensed uh, PEs, you know, engineers and, and architects to sign a petition calling for a new investigation on how these buildings collapsed. And so I joined uh, AE 9-11 Truth as a volunteer and pretty much stayed with it uh, till uh, about oh, 2010, I believe, uh, you know, when I left to do other things. I'm speaking with artist, activist, and filmmaker John Perulis. Today's show, The Truth Burn, 9-11 Science at Burning Man. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. In addition to your many other talents and pursuits, you're an artist. As mm -hmm. a 9-11 activist, you came up with the idea or art project you named mm -hmm. a truth burn. What was a truth burn? What was your concept? Well, uh, once I got connected through Richard, of course, that blossomed into connections with other uh, professionals and scientists mostly who were doing the early uh, research on the collapse of the buildings on 9-11. And one of those was Stephen Jones. And uh, Stephen was the first person to talk about thermite being used as a possible material in uh, bringing down the buildings. And I think that Stephen might have even got a hold of some material, uh, you know, dust or, or debris uh, from the collapse, and he, he was able to study that and uh, identify the main ingredients for thermite, which are powdered aluminum and, and iron oxide. So I thought I'd make a demonstration of a thermite cutter charge 
on actual steel. And that was the whole idea behind Truthburn. So I designed this huge um, sculpture that was uh, about 22 feet wide and um, about 16 or 18 feet high, and it weighed nearly two tons. And I got some help from a a licensed uh, physical engineer who was uh, a member of AE 911 Truth to make sure that this sculpture could withstand hurricane force winds. Uh, and anybody that's, and of course, I brought this sculpture to Burning Man in 2007 at the end of uh, August when the Burning Man Festival happens with the intention of bringing down this uh, sculpture with thermite uh, cutter charges. And of course, Burning Man takes place where? In the Nevada desert? Yeah, it takes place at uh, Black Rock in a desert area outside of uh, Gorillach, uh, Nevada. And it's identified as the number three emergency landing spot for space shuttles. Uh, it is a huge area and it certainly can easily accommodate the landing of a space shuttle. But uh, Burning Man has been there uh, for quite some time. They were kicked off of uh, Baker Beach in San Francisco because what they were doing was uh, deemed to be too dangerous. So uh, they moved to uh, Black Rock in, in Nevada to have the festival. And of course, uh, this was the first year, 2020, where they couldn't have it because of COVID. But in 2007, uh I had a whole thing with the Truth Burn. I called it the Truth Burn to set up a demonstration project on how uh, thermite could be used to cut through steel. That was one of the points that Richard Gage brought up in his early lectures. Could you describe the truth sign that that you made, how you made it? This was a huge project, right? I mean... Oh, yeah. You've talked about how much it weighed. Tell us what it looked like and how you got it up to the Nevada desert. And, of course, uh, most people know about Burning Man, but basically Burning Man uh, is an art festival, right? Yeah, that's right. And uh, you just can't bring anything out there, especially if it involves pyrotechnics or incendiaries. And I plan to bring uh, nearly 100 pounds of thermite out there uh, for my demonstration project. And I had to go through a ritualized and detailed application process with uh, Burning Man to get approved uh, for what I was doing. So that entailed supplying them with uh, the blueprints for my sculpture, what exactly I intended to ignite and with what materials and what safety precautions I was going to take. I, I had to have a safety plan, a very detailed safety plan that involved uh, numerous uh, participants, volunteers, mostly uh, set up a, a perimeter, um, maybe a, I think it was about 150 feet around this sculpture. And um, then I had to be licensed temporarily. They gave me a, a temporary permit as a pyrotechnic expert to uh, uh, set this thing off. So I did get the permission. I I, uh, spent a lot of time designing this thing, uh, showing the blueprints. um, And once I got the permission, then I went ahead 
and and actually gave the shop drawings and the blueprints to uh, steel fabricators in my vicinity in Petaluma in Novato and I just supervised the construction of the the elements uh, I designed the the sculpture so that it could be taken apart in oh I think four easy pieces you know there was uh, two base pieces of uh, tube steel it's a uh, I believe half inch or three-eighths tube steel and the two columns that hold the body of the sign and then the sign itself and the sign was cut with a CNC cutter at a shop, a steel shop in Petaluma, California. And uh, very precisely, this machine, which uses a vector feed from a computer, it, it just cut out the beautiful letters that spell truth uh, in this piece of sheet steel. And then uh, at another company, the whole thing was welded together. And uh, I was present during all these operations so I could see, you know, make sure that the sign was uh, looking the way I had designed it. And yes, it was. And um, it had passed the Burning Man specs for being able to withstand winds. And at Burning Man, uh, there are dust storms that come up frequently. I don't think they're hurricane force, but they are pretty severe. And the truth sculpture just held up remarkably well to to the blast of the severe winds you get at the Black Rock Desert. And um, also I had to set up tests of how I was going to ignite uh, the thermite. And that goes to the second phase of this story, which is also interesting. Okay, so then, well, that's interesting how the truth sign was constructed. How did you carry out this artistic truth burn? Okay, well, uh, I think the most difficult part came with igniting thermite and trying to create a cutter charge. And I didn't have a lot of time. I was under time pressure and also working full time. So this is a project I had to sometimes take time off from work and do on the weekends and I had to raise money. I, I was able to raise money by soliciting donations for it on uh, some 9-11 Truth websites at the time. And I think the project cost me close to $20,000, and I raised about 5000 of that through donations. So I, I had a credit card finance the, the remainder $15,000, and, um, you know, that covered transportation, gas, the sculpture itself, uh, getting it to and from Burning Man. And John, you've only just recently paid off that debt, right? Yeah, yeah that's correct. Yeah, also 2007 uh, was uh, the precipitous time in our uh, world economy because of the financial collapse that happened then the great, what's referred to as the Great Recession, which many of us are still feeling their uh, effects of. So, you know, I, I, I feel the dictum of the uh, suffering artist, you know, doing the thing, but I, I was so committed to doing this and making some awareness about the, the bigger story and the scientific implications for how other 
materials could have been used to bring the Twin Towers down in, in Building 7. And so I have friends that work in the motion picture industry, and I went to them and uh, I asked them for some help, and they said, well, we know a senior uh, demolition expert who uh, just blows things up all the time for major run Hollywood movies. And I said, oh, can, can you put me in touch with the guy? And they said, yeah, sure. So I set up a meeting with him. I, I went to the studio where he worked and um, uh, he said he'd, he'd take a look at and answer my question. So uh, the first thing I showed him was a picture that David Chandler uses a lot in his videos. And it was one of the towers with this huge mushroom explosion emanating from uh, the top quarter of the building. And I said, uh, what do you think when you look at this? And he uh, was taking a drag on his cigarette. I don't know why these demolition guys smoke, but of course it was outside of the studio and away from uh you know, all the pyrotechnics that they use for different things. And he, without lifting up his head, he just took a puff on his cigarette and he said, John, that's an explosion. I said, wow. I said, would you be willing to go public uh, with that? And can I use it in my uh, writings about what I'm trying to do at Burning Man? And he said, no. He said, because I want to hold on to my job. And he had another associate who uh, he said could advise me on how to make an incendiary device out of thermite. And uh, I did. I contacted that guy and he said, well, just don't use my name, but here, here's what you got to do. And so I used clay pots and I used um, a diamond saw to cut a very thin slice at the bottom of these clay pots and that would act like a cutter charge that would act like a directional thing as odd as it may seem thermite can destroy ceramic material or clay but it takes longer to burn through that stuff so it will find the path of easy exit and that was the slit at the bottom of the pots so uh, then I, I got three of those together and I was planning on using those to uh, somehow strap them to the sign. I hadn't worked that out in great detail, but um, I was going to try to melt the sign down using these charges. And this uh, demolition expert, who was also a friend of the, the first guy I met, said that, well, you, you shouldn't do anything like this without testing it first. So I went to the fire department in my town and I explained to them in great detail what I wanted to do. And they, they were fascinated. The, the fire guys, the firefighters came out and, uh, you know, explained to them what thermite could do, how it's exothermic. The stuff could even burn underwater and you can't douse it with a, a, a water hose because it'll just spread stuff out all over the place and that... As far as I knew, the only way to uh, put it out was to try to smother it with sand or something like that. And still, it's going to burn. It's going to burn the sand and it's going to burn underneath the sand. But at least, uh, you know, the harmful effect of it would be contained. So they said, well, you have to go to the 
uh, Bay Area Air Quality Resource Board and get permission from them. And I contacted them and I had my blueprints and diagrams and told them exactly what I wanted to do. And they denied permission to me to do a test in my hometown, which is, um, you know, in Marin County. I'm speaking with artist, activist, and filmmaker John Perulis. Today's show, The Truth Burn, 9-11 Science at Burning Man. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. So, once I had all my permissions uh, secured and I got denial from the Bay Area Resource uh, Quality uh, Organization to, to uh, do a test even though it would have been overseen by the fire department and plenty of vacant lots where I could have done it, that had to be pushed off to Burning Man. So I rented a huge box truck and had forklifts load all the pieces to the truth sculpture in it, along with 15 gallons of gasoline to power the generator that I was planning to use to broadcast uh, music and 9-11 type shows. In fact, uh, when Richard Gage found out I was going to do this, he bought tickets to Burning Man and uh, contacted me and told me he was going to be there. And I said, wow, I said, would you like to uh, give a lecture? You know, I have a sound system set up. And he said, sure, by all means. And um, he was there for this thing. So you know, I packed everything up and made the long drive uh, out to the Black Rock Desert. And, you know, it's kind of wild place, uh, Burning Man. And, you know, just to have all these incendiaries, I it kind of drove me nuts because I had to uh, insist that my volunteer staff would not allow anyone in there who was smoking cigarettes or uh, anywhere near our incendiaries. You know, I had all kinds of dangerous gear like electric matches and thermite sparklers and uh, things like that. And once I got the sign set up with the help of the of the Burning Man workforce crew, then I had a day where I said, okay, I've got to go out with a clay pot, a fourth clay pot that was just going to be used as a, a test thing. And I set up my remote detonator switch, which uh, worked uh, on the same frequency as a garage door opener. And, you know, these are things you could buy off the shelf. It's not illegal. It's not illegal to buy electric matches either at that time anyway. With the advice of some other demolition engineers and people in related industries, you know, I was able to put together a remote controlled ignition device that set off the thermite from a distance because I I didn't want to be anywhere near uh, 70 or 80 pounds of thermite going off. I shot a video of this whole event. The video is still online. You could see the shower of sparks that emanated from this thing. The sign is 22 feet wide and it probably went out uh, three or four times that width with showering sparks and, and intense fireballs. Uh, so it was a good move to uh, ignite this stuff remotely. And before I did all that, Richard Gage gave a talk for about 20 minutes. At the time, it was his standard talk about how jet fuel fires cannot or never have brought down uh, steel high-rise buildings. 
Well, now, John, this truth burn, this took mm-hmm. place at night, didn't it? Yeah, uh, it, it took place before the main event, which is the burning of the man. And it was the day before. You know, after I did a test and that was successful, I was able to take a breather and relax a little bit. But I was never relaxed. I've been to Burning Man a few times before that and always to have fun. And that's why people go there. They have fun. They don't go there to have stress and and worry. But that's what my experience was in 2007. It was just constant stress and worry. People are on drugs. Uh, They do all kinds of weird things. I had people climbing the, the sign, you know, just to try to keep them off. You know, it's dangerous. Even when I had an exclusion zone with volunteers set up about 100, 150 foot perimeter, people would still go through our caution tape and bicycles. And so seeing that that's how things work at Burning Man, I, I decided to make a big change on my concept decided not to risk the danger of uh, actually trying to melt the sign down. So what what I did instead is I went to the scrap metal yard at Burning Man and asked them if they had a, a spare piece of steel, and they did. They had a, a piece of uh, half tube steel, uh, maybe quarter inch thick, and I used that. I set it up on cinder blocks underneath the truth sign and then put uh, three pots filled with thermite to symbolize the three buildings that had come down. We burned a beautiful straight line through that steel beam that I borrowed from Burning Man. And I still have that in storage somewhere. That proved that you could use thermite as a steel cutting device. Could you explain exactly how you ignited the thermite from a distance? How did you ignite the thermite? I believe you've told me that you can't light thermite with matches or fire, even a blowtorch. No, you can't even light it with a blowtorch. Uh, it takes a, a powerful ignition source, almost uh, at the, the same burning temperature as uh, thermite, which is I think it's around uh, 4,000 degrees uh, Fahrenheit is what the uh, temperature it burns at. So in looking around for where to purchase thermite, I found a company in the East Coast that sells railroad thermite. It's commercial thermite. Uh, this is what railroad companies use to tie rails together. You know, rails come at a certain length and they have to be welded together when uh, track is being laid down and built. And this industry found that thermite welding is vastly superior to other forms of welding in that the thermite creates a 100% solid bond between the two rails. So they make uh, their version of a, a ceramic receptacle type device that fits over the rail and it's filled with thermite, and an engineer will come by with a thermite sparkler, which looks like uh, the kind of sparkler you buy around 4th of July. You know, you could light that with a match, and then it sets off a very bright, uh, sparkly. Well, those sparklers are actually thermite. They're aluminum powder and iron oxide, and they're held together with some kind of binder. 
So the railroad engineer will go to that device that sits over the rail, and he'll just uh, light the the thermite sparkler and bury it. Just stick it right in to the pot of thermite and walk away. And a few seconds later, that will ignite the thermite. So I asked the railroad thermite company if they sold those things too, and they said yes. And um, you know, <laughs> in those days, UPS actually sent those things to me. So. Uh, you know, they had the red label, uh, dangerous uh, explosive warnings, and they were not flown. All these materials had to be driven uh, by truck, and I had to go to a special drop-off uh, zone in uh, Petaluma to pick all these things up. They would not deliver it to my house. So once I signed for it, I got them. And, of course, all this time I was consulting with the engineer I mentioned before from the motion picture industry. And... Also, Mark Pauline, uh, who's still active in Petaluma, he started survival research labs. And one thing Mark is famous for is blowing things up. He even lost some fingers uh, experimenting with uh, various explosives. And I asked him, I called him up and I asked him how how to ignite thermite. And he told me you could use a railroad flare, that, that that actually works. So I thanked him. But I ended up not using that method in preferring the uh, the thermite sparklers. So how I chose to ignite the thermite, and, and since I wanted to do this safely with remote devices, I got camping matches, which are, they look like stick matches, but they're really thick, and they have huge globs of uh, fire-starting material at the tip. So uh, I got my electric match, tied it on to the sparkler and surrounded that with um, camping matches. And the, the electric match was buried in this. And then I taped it together. And uh, this is a test that I did do uh, at my home outside uh, to make sure that that would work. And yeah, it did. I, I had a two-component uh, remote setup that involved uh, something that looked like a cell phone transmitter and a receiver. And this uh, system worked on the same frequency as uh, garage door openers, which I think 100 megahertz frequency. And uh, when when you hit the, the trigger uh, button on the cell phone device, it sends a signal to a remote signal to the receiver end of this. The receiver's connected by a set of wires that go to uh, the electric match. And I chose to be about, I believe it was 70 to 75 feet away from the, uh, the pots underneath the sign that were filled with thermite. So I had the, the receiver set about 75 feet, and then I went beyond that even to maybe 100 feet. So I had a good signal, line of sight signal to the receiver from my cell phone transmitter. And when I uh, triggered the cell phone, it sent a signal that sent an electric impulse to the electric matches. And uh, I had three wires actually coming out of the the uh, receiver that went to each of the three pots. And wow, bingo, uh, that thing set off all the electric matches perfectly. 
and you could at first see a, a small fire starting and then in a few seconds it just went crazy and uh, just uh, burned, uh, like I had mentioned previously, way beyond the 22-foot width of the, the truth sign and uh, much higher than the 16 feet uh, that the sign was. And uh, after it cooled, we were able to go up to it and we had to wait a while because there were molten iron metal uh, shards and, and globules all over the place. And uh, once that cooled down, then we were able to go up to it and just look at the results of uh, how we had achieved a, a perfect uh, linear cut right through this piece of steel that I had gotten from the Burning Man uh, steel scrapyard. And how long did the thermite burn for? The video's still online. If you Google uh, truth burn, thermite burn, uh, it'll, it'll come up. Oh, gosh, maybe 10 minutes. Not very long. I'm speaking with artist, activist, and filmmaker John Perulis. Today's show... The Truth Burn, 9-11 Science at Burning Man. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. You were using thermite. Mm-hmm. And what is nanothermite? Now, that's different, isn't it? Yeah, it's well, very different. And uh, that that's a good question because that's where the Truth Burn really took off. Shortly after I did it, Stephen Jones, who uh, you know is a, a highly respected nuclear physicist from uh, Brigham Young University, and who had done uh, lots of experiments with uh, thermite as a possible uh, method for bringing down the the towers of the World Trade Center, he contacted me shortly after the Truth Burn and asked me if I had saved any of the residue from the Truth Burn art exhibit at Burning Man. And I said, well, yeah, I did, as a matter of fact. Uh, one of the things that Burning Man insists on is that you collect all your burned debris from the desert floor. They they don't want any junk or, or burning material. So I actually went through and collected a lot of uh, burned thermite residue from the Truth Burn. And I had volunteers that helped me use magnets, magnetic sweepers, and we went through the whole area just collecting globules of iron. Uh, That's the byproduct. Uh, Once you melt or burn thermite, it it turns into these dark blobs of melted iron. So Steve Jones asked me if I could collect some of those, label them, and uh, send it to him because he said he was working on an important paper on possibly an advanced form of thermite. And he asked me not to talk about all that uh, until the paper was published. And that paper became the famous nanothermite paper that was published in the Bentham Open Physics Journal. And the paper was sponsored by the Open Chemical Physics Journal in January of 2009. So it took two years for the Burning Man thermite to be used as a control substance to compare it to what was later found by the Jones team to be nanothermite, which is different from regular thermite in that it 
it's not so much as an incendiary as it is an explosive. In fact, the explosive yield from uh, nanothermite is even greater than some of the explosive yields in materials that are used in controlled demolitions. And this is mentioned in the uh, nanothermite paper, uh, which is titled uh, Active Thermitic Material Discovered in the Dust from the 9-11 World Trade Center Catastrophe. So your truth burn proved that thermite could be used as a cutter charge because it sliced through this steel beam that you had positioned below the truth sign. And then Dr. Stephen Jones took the residue from regular thermite and what? He compared it to the residue from nanothermite that he had gotten samples of? Yeah, the nanothermite paper is a very detailed scientific report, and it, it's not written for the layman. It's uh, written for uh, people that have science degrees that could understand, you know, the methodology used. They used uh, oh, uh, uh, X-ray energy dispersive spectroscopy, XEEDS, and, and SEMS, uh, which are... Uh, uh, you know, electron microscope devices to examine the dust that they got from various spots and documented spots from reliable sources. And they were able to identify what has also referred to as superthermite. Superthermite or nanothermite was developed in military labs, uh, possibly in Lawrence Livermore lab, which is a national lab that does computer-modeled nuclear bomb tests, and they also had produced papers on nanothermite uh, before 9-11. So the existence of nanothermite was established by <laughs> the government itself. And Steve's team, which has a lot of famous names in it, by the way, Frank Lege and Kevin Ryan, uh, Jeffrey Farrar and Niels Harrick were contributors to it. Uh, uh, Greg Roberts from AE 9-11 Truth was the editor, did a, a spectacular job making all this readable and digestible. And um, there, there were some others, James Gurley, Bradley Larson. Uh, Steve generously mentioned me in, in the report uh, for supplying uh, commercial thermite. And they looked at my commercial thermite under these uh, electron and x-ray microscopes, and they got a uh, a printout um, that uh, looks like a graph, and that's on the thermite paper. And what I did is I got those two printouts from the nanothermite and my thermite, and I just used some uh, computer graphic uh, program to superimpose the two slides from nanothermite and conventional thermite on top of each other. And you just have to look at that. I mean, they almost line up uh, perfectly uh, in terms of their chemical signature. So so uh, the paper went on to prove that this wasn't, you know, there was some red chips in, in the, the dust, uh, but they were saying that was unignited uh, nanothermite. And uh, the paper mentions how nanothermite can be uh, suspended in other mediums like uh, gelatin, or they call it sol gel, 
or it could be mixed into paint. You can actually give workers paint cans of nanothermite and have them painted on steel beams. And uh, my hunch, I'm not a scientist, uh, I am a building professional. I've been in the construction trades for four decades. So, you know, I could see, uh, I can understand how these things are made and, uh, you know, achieved. And you could send somebody out innocently to just say, hey, this is a, you know, a coating. And uh, it's a little bit easier to ignite nanothermite than regular thermite. In fact, a blowtorch can ignite uh, nanothermite, whereas a blowtorch cannot ignite uh, regular thermite. Now, the reason for that is because the particles in uh, nanothermite are uh, in microns. And that's what contributes to their explosive yield. Once, once you powderize something that small, uh, it, it starts acquiring explosive properties. And um, nanothermite is still used by the military in uh, decoy rockets to throw off uh, missiles that are guided by heat seeking. Uh, nanothermite gives off an intense heat signature that these missiles follow. Um, so the military still uses it. They've used uh, thermite even in World War II. Uh, they used to load incendiary bombs with uh, thermite when they were bombing uh, German cities in World War II. So thermite's been around for a long time, but not nanothermite. Uh, regular thermite is uh, made through a grinding process but nanothermite is made from a chemical process. And uh, Kevin Ryan, one of the contributors to the nanothermite paper, was actually able to make a very small quantity of uh, nanothermite. He is a chemist and uh, was able to ignite it and also show that it has these kinds of explosive properties. And just to remind everyone the name of this extremely important peer-reviewed article Active thermitic material discovered in dust from the 9/11 World Trade Center catastrophe, and of course that was uh, that appeared in the Open Chemical Physics Journal in 2009, published by Bentham Research. Just an aside, uh, John, mm -hmm. uh, a friend of mine, and this is another um, a very sort of surprising linked to the art world, a friend of mine, now deceased, Jeanette McKinley, uh, in addition to living in Oakland, California, also had an apartment in New York City right across the street from the World Trade Center. And when those towers were exploded, it knocked out the windows to her apartment. Her apartment filled up with that dust, and she was an artist. So she went out in the street, and she told me, that the street was covered with shoes. And so she collected the shoes and the dust and made art projects out of them. And Jeanette McKinley turned out to be one of the many sources of the dust from the World Trade Centers that Dr. Stephen Jones uh, used for his experiments. Yeah, that's correct. And uh, I knew Janet McKinley, too. And in fact, I met her. Greg Roberts and I uh, drove out uh, to her apartment in Oakland, where she gave us uh, copies of her book. And, you know, we talked about 
how she experienced the 9-11. And everything you say was true. In fact, a lot of the dust had accumulated in her apartment. The the blast uh, blew out the windows in her apartment, which was near uh, the World Trade Center. And she collected all the dust and uh, submitted it to Steve Jones and his team for the 9-11 paper. Uh, this is documented, and she's mentioned by name in, in the paper. And so are uh, the other contributors, and they go through a, a very detailed description of how and where they collected the dust and the nanothermite materials in all these samples all lined up and matched together. And through mathematics and, and uh, deductive scientific methods, uh, Steve and the team were able to show that there was enough of this material to be used uh, to bring down the Twin Towers and possibly Building 7. You know, the problem with all of this material as it collapsed, uh, we all know this, that uh, Giuliani and uh, FEMA, maybe others, uh, gave orders for all this material to be quickly gathered up and shipped off to China for recycling. And uh, no real forensic analysis was done by NIST or FEMA. Uh, it was left up to individual, uh, independent, and courageous researchers like uh Steve and Kevin Ryan to make their own scientific assessments for what happened. So there you go. And I also wanted to mention that um, Yaro Mako from uh, Guns and Butter, he's been with me from the beginning. He was out there at the Truth Burn with you, helping you, wasn't he? Oh, indispensable help. Uh, you know, I had a mixed bag of uh, helpers. Uh, you know, some people just wanted a party and they kind of left me high and dry. Uh, but I managed anyway. And, and Yarrow was there 100% of the time, just amazing guy. And this is the first time I ever met him. I, I heard his name mentioned on your show a lot. And uh, uh, I wasn't even sure that he was going to be there. He, he, he just showed up and he said, oh, I'm Yarrow Maka. I said, wow, okay. And I said, would you want to help me on this? And he said, oh, for sure. And uh, I mean, his help was indispensable. You know, when when you've got so many dangerous materials around, just keeping people in various levels of drug-induced stupor and, and intoxication, <laughs> you know, smoking, <laughs> whatever, uh, you really need help. And, and I got that from Yarrow, and there were some other people that helped me too. I remember that Yarrow was very excited about about going out to um, Burning Man and, and helping with that. He was uh, very interested in your art project. And then finally, John, what most interests you presently in terms of the state of the world? Uh, so I'm currently concerned with the looming financial collapse that this country is facing partly due to uh, COVID, but mostly due to uh, the rather unregulated uh, casino operations that are now characterizing uh, trading as it is done now on Wall Street. And the other thing that I'm involved with is in Marin County, the Marin Carbon Project, which is developed a peer-reviewed 10-year uh, program that shows that a uh, certain type of low-depth tillage of land and the injection of uh, composting materials 
has a dramatic increase in the carbon retention of soils and that uh, they're trying to get uh, agriculture to get away from the injection of nitrogen and other uh, chemical additives to soil and just allow microbial activity, which is a huge impactor in nutrition, to boost up soil and save the planet, basically. You know, so those are my current interests. John Perulis, thank you so much again. Oh, thank you, Bonnie. I've been speaking with John Perulis. Today's show has been The Truth Burn, 9-11 Science at Burning Man. John Perulis is an artist, activist, and filmmaker. He has a varied career as a filmmaker, live video streamer, artist, and licensed contractor. He served on Greenpeace ships and land actions as a cameraman from 1983 to 1986. His film work has appeared in numerous environmental documentaries and news stories, including 60 Minutes. He has been a licensed contractor in California since 1984. Currently, he maintains his contracting business as well as his video business, Brightpath Video. Visit his websites at brightpathvideo.com and brightpathdesign.com. That's brightpathvideo.com and brightpathdesign.com. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner, Yaromako, and Tony Rango. Visit us at gunsandbutter.org to listen to past programs, comment on shows, or join our email list to receive our newsletter that includes recent shows and updates. Email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.org. Follow us on Twitter at GNB Radio. Become a Guns and Butter monthly BAI buddy to support this program by going online to www.givetowbai.org. That's give the number to WBAI.org. Be a Guns and Butter buddy at give to WBAI.org. Trying to steal your life You know what I'm saying Look what decides yourself For peace